Hello and welcome to part three of our epic podcast on the horror films of this decade on the Big Smoke Podcast. I am John Cribbs. I'm here with Chris Funderberg, and we're joined by S.A. Bradley of yeah. Elbin for Horror and Author Screaming for Pleasure. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for doing this massive three-part series, which Thank was you. as a quick 45-minute episode. <laughs> well, all you had to do was take a look at the scope. <laughs> it was going to be like, there's no possible way it was going to be short. Uh, but I think uh, this shall be considered comprehensive. <laughs> but we are, we're, we're headed to third base here. We are, the end is in sight. We um, are on your fourth pick, Mr. Bradley. Can you please Tell us what it is. Sure. It's from 2018. It is a, a U.S. good old-fashioned American film uh, by Andy Mitten, and it is called The Witch in the Window. And Mitten's done some really interesting stuff. I, I like what he's done. I think this is the one that is really the, the home run for him. But he did a movie called We Go On. Uh, which uh, had to do with Life After Death and Yellow Brick Road, which is kind of a surreal little horror film as well. Which in the window, uh, the, the plot is pretty simple. It's a, a, a man named Simon who is estranged from his family. He takes his son to go flip houses in Vermont. They have this farmhouse that he bought. He's lying about whether or not it's going to be their house uh, because he's been in trouble before for flipping. Uh, so he's not coming to his son with uh, honest intent and they go to this farmhouse and they're not only kind of strangers to each other trying to slowly uh, learn to uh, appreciate each other again but there's something in the house that's a little bit strange there's a malicious spirit that uh, they find out is named Lydia previous owner and it seems that they uh, that she died inside of this house. She's kind of an urban legend of the area. Very, uh, I, I'm trying to remember if it was upstate New York. It's up, oh no, Vermont, upstate Vermont. Uh, and uh, it's uh, very much a rural community. You know, it takes a little bit to walk to your neighbor's house and everything. So uh, what has happened in any area of the neighborhood takes on this, import and becomes almost like a relic of the area and every time they're making a repair to the house at first it's all being a slog nothing's working it starts to almost seem like the house is fixing itself and I don't want to give away too much because where this movie goes is completely not what I expected. What you're hearing there sounds like a good old-fashioned ghost story. It sounds like uh, a New England tale. And where it ends up going is in the... Uh, we talked about Don Coscarelli earlier in Phantasm. And there's a... This is a pick of my list that, that may seem a little bit out of the ordinary from the others, but I have a true love for the horror film that denies its budget, <laughs> that disregards what its, uh, its limitations are and decides to just go full swing for a larger idea and making it hard on themselves by going down the, the path of a maybe a virtual reality or a different reality or a surreality or a nonlinear narrative. Uh, and it falls into like movies like James Ward Burkett's Coherence, uh, another very low budget film that blew me away because of intention. 
there's sometimes a movie gets almost like the DNA of how much people are enjoying pulling the rug out from under you. Uh, yeah. the, the actors are in on it. The director is in on it. And you don't see it coming because it's so small. So movies like Time Crimes and Primer, I have a love for movies that say, let's just pretend we can do anything. Yeah. But let's put a bit of logic to it. And so this movie falls into that area where this movie caught me off off guard completely. There is uh, a, a, something that I absolutely love too. And I think we, we talked about, um, oh my goodness, uh, he did Oculus and Mike Flanagan. Uh, Mike Flanagan, magnificent director. And one of his earliest uh, it has a lot of nonlinear scares in it. Mm-hmm. So does Oculus. Uh, this movie has nonlinear scares and then starts to kind of like the movie itself, uh, the time frame of it, what's happening seems as if it's deconstructing. And I loved how it caught me off guard with just visuals. Uh, something yeah. as simple as the action is happening in the foreground. It's almost like Val Luton was resurrected and brought in to make <laughs> this film. Because there's stuff that's happening in the foreground and the background is what we really should be looking at. And there's this great moment where I don't even realize that I'm scared yet. And all of a sudden, I feel that there's something off in the, the sun. They're up on the second floor at the, in this room where there's a big bay window looking out over the, the uh, neighborhood or the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the farm. And he goes, who's that in the chair? And I never even saw the person in the chair until he says that. This, the, the camera so cleverly misdirects my energy to looking at the foreground that by the time I see that, I am in a ghost story. And it is extremely rare that a movie does that right. Normally, that kind of thing happens in narrative. So it happens in like you telling a story. A creepy pasta mm-hmm. would do something like that. Yeah. But a visual doing it, really blew me away and I was caught at that moment and from then on the movie goes in a direction that is different than what even that is by the end of the film it is not the movie that it started with and yet it makes logical sense once you get the setup of how the father and the son relate to each other there is a moment in that film that is very much like a moment in Gavin's film a dark uh, 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 a dark song. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, there is a moment very much that has to do with loved ones that they mirror each other and they're both cruel. There's a, sad- a sadistic cruelty yeah. to what's going on in there. And the movie has that kind of thing where it doesn't rely on special effects, doesn't rely on gore. It relies on cinema. The movie makes no sense if it's a play. It can't just be a story. It needs to be photographed. It needs to have that to work. And so it's pure cinema in that way. And I love bringing this. I have yet to have anybody that's watched this movie go, it's okay. Everybody that I have referred to this film have gone, I had no idea this even existed. That is great. Where did this come from? I had no idea it existed before you sent your list. I'd never heard of it. And I like to think of myself as somebody who's aware of of every movie that's released ever. No, but it's, yeah, yeah, it's... uh, Same here. And I heard heard you mention it on um, uh, Geeking with James Hancock. 
And I and I heard you mentioning uh, mentioning it on the when you uh, did your live stream with James Hancock geeking with James. Oh yes, um, yeah. So and I was like, what the hell is this movie? I've never heard of before. Um, the shot too during like it's like during a montage where it's outside the house panning across, and you see her in the window yeah. in the background, and it, it doesn't call attention to itself at all. It's easy to miss. But just this idea that she's always there, even when the characters don't know, even when you don't know, is like, that's like the kind of thing we're talking about here, where it's like, it's, yeah, that just has its ideas on the screen. I love yeah. that. And it's something that Flanagan did with his Haunting of Hill House, which is yeah. that there, there's actually an article about the 36 hidden ghosts that you didn't see yeah. in the movie because they're always just in the background. They look like part of the hidden ghosts are the scariest. No. Yeah, but and, it's and that, and that a joke. Insidious has one of the great moments, which is where there's that little kid that's up against the wall. Oh, and at yeah. first you're like, it's so obvious. And you're like, she's not saying anything about this kid with its face up against the wall. Is it like some kind of weird clothing horse or something? Yeah. That, and then it ends up being a character that's running through the house. And that was so unsettling. And, uh, and uh, Witch in the Window has several of those kind of things in it. And uh, I just, I love that playing with liminal space. I love playing with time and I love when a movie, and that's why I was so happy to put it on here. It would have never made my list. If it wasn't for the conversation that we had before mm-hmm. we put this show on. It was just like, oh, well, lots of people are going to talk about Get Out. Lots of people yeah. are going to bring these up. No one's going to talk about Witch in the Window. And this is the kind of thing that allows a film like this. We want to reward good films. We want yeah. to reward people who are doing great horror. I mean, it's, and it's I just desperate to recommend a good movie to people. When you find yeah. a good movie that you can tell people to feel see, it feels like what a relief, what a fucking joy yeah. that there's a good one I can tell people about. Yeah, and when they're kind of look, they draw a blank when you say the name, like, no, I don't know this. Yeah. And that's, that's what I love going to conventions uh, and staying at the bar late at night. And then you see people pulling out their notepads or their, their phones at this point. But like, <laughs> what was that again? Spell that? And it's like, <laughs> joyous. It's excellent. Like you said, it it's, follows the Coscarelli mold and that it, it goes in directions you don't expect, but has that grounded center of the relationship between the father and the son that is compelling enough that, you know, you can stick with it and that they become, you know, your window to the witch in the window. Yeah. Like Phantasm, as batshit crazy as that movie is, it's three friends, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Two that are brothers. Yeah. The and moment the Joey get- sees the finger and says, okay, I'm with you, you know, and you're like, yeah. yeah. Like that these guys yeah. are going to work together and like they're going to, their, their relationship's going to make this movie. Yeah, and, and it's all about loss, right? And so it, it's even more somber and more uh, impactful when you realize where Phantasm ends. And I think you have that same feeling with Witch in the Window. Where it starts and where it ends is, in a way, M.R. James' ghost story. You know, mm-hmm. where there is a longing, a melancholy, a true sorrow mm-hmm. in what happens in the end. And yet it's, it's also diabolical. So I, I, really, I really like the movie. I really like it a lot. Cool. That's great. And again, I'm really glad you picked this one. I agree. It's great to have a more obscure film to, to tell people about, uh, as much as I love a lot of the movies on these lists. Uh, our next one is from horror writer and screenwriter Matt Wedge who is the, the pretty much the 
uh, expert as far as I'm concerned on all things John Flynn, uh, many things Don Coscarelli, and certainly the late, great Larry Cohen. Uh, Matt recently ranked the 50 best co- characters in the films of Larry Cohen for Daily Grindhouse is a fantastic <laughs> list to go through oh. and have him uh, justify <laughs> all of his, his choices. Where um, does the stuff rank? As a character. As a character. <laughs> the stuff the didn't stuff. make it on there. Um, but uh, his stuff can be found at his website, Obsessive Movie Nerd. So Matt likes The Babadook. You're next. The Eyes of My Mother by Nicholas Pe- uh, Pes- Pesci? Pesci. 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 Thank you. Um, Let's do that one again. The Eyes of My Mother by Nicholas Pesci. The Woman and Housebound by Gerard Johnstone Ooh. from New Zealand. I love Housebound. Yeah. That's a yeah. fun movie. Yeah. That's Some fun. people don't like it because they think it's a cheat because of where it ends up. At the yeah, end. yeah, there is a twist at the end that I yeah. guess technically negates what it had been setting up previously. But, but I thought it was, I think it's still there a good, so yeah. Much fun. yeah. Exactly, yeah. and it's a solid, we talked about solid before, and yeah. it's, it's a movie that's very solid and firm in what it's doing, and it's got a great sense of humor. I mean, yeah. dark oh, very shit. fine movie, yeah, no, and great acting, and just a really well-drawn uh, situation and again one of those very low budget set one set sort of films that makes the most of you know the atmosphere and the environment so i love that and eyes of my mother is a really interesting film and mm. it's very very super stylistic yeah. um in a, an era when you would think you know only horror movies can get away with that level of stylization you know yeah very rich black and white and the use of shadow in that film i think are very impressive yeah the giallo fans absolutely love that film mm-hmm. because of the stylistic level to it when i first saw it it angered me so much and i have to give it credit for angering me as much as it did because it is we're talking about dark films that may be one of the darkest ones that's on here it's truly uh, you would never look at that and say torture porn right because of how <laughs> it looks yeah. and yet the the central conceit of that film there's some uh, it, seriously fucked up stuff in that <laughs> grotesquerie i mean truly grotesque imagery and yeah. unsettling sorrowful stuff i don't know what it is about throats someone being like made to not be able to speak like something as funny as motel hell bothers me because yeah. of the cutting of the vocal cords yeah uh the elmore leonard book white jazz there's a guy who mm. voluntarily cuts his vocal cords so that he's not killed by the the main uh assassin and that always hits me as like this horrible vile way to to dismember somebody and still have them be well it takes away so much at once right i mean not only the ability to speak but then the blood that's running out of you i mean it's pretty much the most debilitating injury that you can inflict on in black and white that that movie just is so unsettling and it's sad there's so much sorrow in it and it's Mm -hmm. almost uh, I don't even, it's foreign. It's a foreign film. It feels European in the way that it goes uh, almost in this sympathetic fashion for this horrible person, really. Yeah. Mean, it, at first, not horrible. At first, twisted. And then by the end, I mean, we're talking about something truly, truly unsettling. There's a, a visual image of that woman with chains all over her 
trying to scream, hair over her eyes, you know, just the, yeah. she's this, like this fraud thing. And uh, God, I, I, I couldn't believe how much that movie upset me. And then afterwards, after seeing it again, because I had, you know, when I yeah. disturbed, I have to see it again. <laughs> and I was like, you know, this is actually really strong. And I have to be able to recommend this to people because this is, I won't say it's important, but it's a significant horror film. It's a film that uh, for a debut, because I, I think it's Pesky's first film. I know he came out with um, uh, Pierced after that. Mm-hmm. But uh, this, this was a phenomenal stylistic film that had some truly unsettling, once again, uh, kind of working in that liminal space. We don't see the violence in the beginning. Mm-hmm. We know that there's a threat, but we don't see the threat. We meet this weird character that seems like he walked off the page of funny games. <laughs> and it's like, what the heck is going on? And then it gets even stranger. You know, there's yes. vengeance and family blood and family sorrow and loss. And, and there's a ton going on in this very, very small movie around a farmhouse, basically. Yeah, and you spend the whole movie thinking, I hope things aren't as horrible as I'm imagining, and they turn yeah. out to be worse. Yeah, it can't be this bleak, like the love interest going out to the, oh, God. Oh, it's, Jesus, that's it's like It's like they sat there and went, okay, let's take a little bit of Henry Portia of a serial killer. The gut punch <laughs> in that movie, and the gut punch. Wow, it, it really is. It's a, it's a powerful, powerful film. It is. Um, next list from Mr. Patrick Horvath. Yeah. Co-writer and co-director of Entrance, the Pack 2, the jailbreak segment of Southbound, mm. mm-hmm. and the miniseries Hell Parade. Um, but has a side gig that is just as ama- impressive. Uh, he's a freelance illustrator and storyboard artist. You can check out his work at patrickhorvath.com and couldn't recommend higher that you check out his Twitter uh, feed. Uh, the thread this month he has is original art dedicated to Mario Bava, and they are oh, spectacular yeah. uh, uh, works of art. And that's at Patrick Horvath. Wow, so, I gotta, yeah. we gotta take a moment to praise Southbound. I mean, Southbound is so good. He's got the best segment in it. One of the best have you, have anthologies ever. Have we talked about, you should see it. It's very, very interesting. I was talking to him, Patrick, I, I met at a party once, and he, he described it as, what if you took a Darden Brothers movie and made it into a slasher film? And that's huh. exactly what it is when you watch it. And he's a really interesting uh, super knowledgeable, super incisive guy. And Stephen King in Entertainment Weekly highlighted it in trance once as like the best horror movie I've seen in a while. He just watched it on like pay-per-view in a hotel with a really strongly recommended pedigree. And it's it's quite something. I think you'll really dig it. Uh, And you should seek it out. Yeah, it's a good movie. Um, His list is Green Room by Jeremy Saulnier. The Witch... A Dark Song, Yes, Mandy, and Raw. Yeah, this is, a, this is like a perfect list. I feel like everything on here is like strongly represented on other people's lists too. You know what I mean? Like it's not, it's not a list that's going to be like, let's be the most original. It's like these are the super hits in some way. You know, yeah. like these are things. And it's funny, I was thinking too about Mandy where... 
in this day and age when everything's so accessible, like we've talked about on this, and you mm -hmm. can see whatever you want, and especially on social media, everybody knows about everything. There's no, it's so much harder to find discoveries and surprising things. What is like an actual cult phenomenon? What does it look like, like Eraserhead in 2018? Right. And it's Mandy. And it was sort of very heartening and exciting to see like, a bona fide fucking cult hit, you know, something like The Witch or Green Room. I don't know in terms of ticket sales and audience what's bigger or smaller than Mandy, but Mandy has that feel of like weird outsider art that completely yeah. struck a chord. And yeah, everybody went bananas and it was just, but it still felt like if you ask, you know, somebody at your office who you don't want to talk to if they've heard of Mandy, they've never fucking heard of it in their Right, life, you know? right. No, it's an in, uh, it's one of those movies that, you know, Green Room, The Witch, Dark Song, Raw. I mean, they yeah. have a certain level of uh, outre to them. But yeah. Mandy is just, Mandy is like, it kicks into that spot of you as a kid playing pretend. Let's come up with the craziest yeah. story we can. And he does it full heart into it. Yeah. I mean, I, I did not want to like it. I was like, why are people, t you got a Nicolas Cage film. People were sold on him just going fucking evil. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. People are like going crazy for this, uh, this uh, preview. And I was going, I don't know what this is going to be. And I have to say the first 25 minutes or so, uh, maybe less, but probably around then I was like going, I don't know. I have a feeling everybody's out of their skulls. I think everybody's <laughs> just kind of going for this because they're going for it. It's like some weird yeah. Nick Cage things like Betty White still being sexy or something. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. So I'm like sitting there going, you know, what is this? And then it hits and it was just one madness after another and it's it yeah. makes you giddy watching that movie is like watching it's like talking to richard stanley you know yeah. it's got this whole thing of like this is this is unhinged and it's so entertaining and yeah. yet not dangerous you know it's, no and it's funny that you said like when it hits this movie does have the feel of like you smoke some weed and you're like, that's not having any effect on me. Right. I don't know that it's working. And then you look down and you're like, where the fuck are my pants? What's going on? You know, it has that moment where, yeah. where you're like, I guess it's taking, but really, yeah. really that sort of feel to it. Yeah. I was like angered by this movie because uh, after the horrible event that happens, what, 40 minutes into the movie uh, when Nick Cage is left by himself, um, the movie you know, then reverts to like some, you know, broad comedy and some goofiness, you know, that, that clearly it wants just to be, to be some fun. And it was hard for me to accept the fun after this horrible death that we see. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't think it worked. And then I kind of realized that, well, I think what they're going for, just to speculate what Cosmos might've been going for after death, we have to get back to normalcy somehow. And it, it has to be going out of your mind, Nick Cage batshit style. Then like, that's just the way you got to do it. Yeah. If it's got to be the Cheddar Goblin commercial and then, you know, that's the way it's got to be because those things continue to exist and the world continues to be as it is. And there's going to be zaniness and funny moments in life after a tragedy. Yeah, it's so, so bizarre. Is that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so bizarre. Like you mentioned Cheddar Goblin. I'm thinking I'll buy that for a dollar in RoboCop. Yeah. 
and your money, your life out of time bandits, where there's uh-huh. always this yeah. bizarreness that's on TV that's mm-hmm. letting yeah. you know that reality, the normal world is much more messed up than what you're actually seeing. Yeah. And so I thought that that was, uh, it, it cracked me up that he went down that path. It was like, he, he uh, we talked about it before, uh, unabashed filmmaking, just like I don't, we talked about it with uh, Coscarelli, you know, whatever happens is going to happen. We're just going to come into this thing. Now, I won't say that uh, this is uh, a, a, a Coscarelli film, but I, I, I think part of this film is not that you are in a whole new world. It's that you are very aware you're watching a movie. Yeah. And it's okay. Sometimes that's okay. Sometimes seeing, you know, cards that look like album covers slowly forming yeah uh, it's it's like breaking the waves you know where breaking Mm. the waves has this very these very strange obvious moments of this is a movie and this is act one and this is act two and we're going to put this music in here so it had that kind of that surreal kind of thing of listen we're dogma 95ing a horror film here we're going to do all this crazy stuff that's going to show up and uh i think when he was alone what what sold me that it was okay that i was watching a movie and that co- uh, uh i can never say his name cosmatos is that it cosmatos cosmatos thank you cosmatos uh said it's okay you're just gonna enjoy watching this movie is when cage is in the bathroom with his vodka or whatever in his underwear and it is obvious that the camera operator doesn't know what to do yeah. Are we going to go up? Are we going back? Are we? What's he going to do? We don't know. Cage is just, he's off. And he's yeah. going to do what he wants. He's crying and screaming and all this. And, and there is this weird, all of a sudden it gets dangerous. At that moment, there's this feeling of something bigger than the movie. Like the, he yeah. might, it's like I heard, I remember Christopher Walken did an Elvis one-man show. And he broke, this is back in, I think, the 80s. And he breaks the fourth wall. Someone comes up and asks for an autograph, and someone that's in the show. But you think they're going up, and he stays in character, and he pulls out a gun. And he's like, hey, man, I'm, and and people have to come, like, stagehands come out, and they, like, grab his hand and everything. Like, dude, whoa, whoa. And if you know Walken, Walken is deathly afraid of guns. But there was that whole thing of where it suddenly went from being this silly thing of him doing Elvis to this moment where it deconstructs into, is this a play? Uh, has he lost his mind? Is he on Coke? You know, there's, it's disruptive. People are talking yeah. all at once. And so there's this moment of danger that I felt was very much like that in Mandy. And then it turns crazy. You know, yeah. giant chainsaws and everything. And it's, we're in on a joke that the director is allowing us to have. And yet he's making the movie as if he's dead ass serious. Yeah. You know, the production value doesn't drop for a second, you know, and, and it's just so weird. Full frontal nudity, weird double images. I mean, we're talking like John Borman pre-Zardoz and stuff. <laughs> you know, there's just craziness going on all through this film. Yeah. And even, even that if is I a call. hated Mandy, even if I hated it, I would be so glad it exists. It's just great that this kind of crazy shit can, you know still come out in this day and age. So yeah, what are the chances, right? What are the Seriously. chances where you don't have to have somebody like uh, The Room, 
yeah. now actually and then it get strikes a, a chord yeah. with audiences is very fascinating. Mm -hmm. Very fascinating. Mr. Funderburg, give us your fourth pick. My fourth pick is a straight ahead horror movie. You know, I talked about so far The Untamed and Coldfish and Penance. Let me just pick good old Curse of Chucky by Don Mancini from 2013. Uh, this is um, after a series of sequels in the Chucky films, uh, like Bride of Chucky and Seed of Chucky, where the films become very, they're almost comedies, they're very meta. They completely go off the rails in a great way, and I deeply enjoyed those movies. This was an attempt to sort of reset the franchise. It's sort of a soft reboot. If you see the movie, by the end you realize it's actually not a total uh, reboot that it's pretending to be, and that's one of its nice tricks that it has up its sleeve. But it's just a very simple straight-ahead story where there's a woman living alone with her mother who dies, and then when the family comes, she's wheelchair-bound. She's played by Brad Dereef's daughter, Fiona Dereef, uh, who's phenomenal in this movie. Phenomenally, phenomenally good, wheelchair-bound. And as the family of her deceased mother show up and are sort of unpleasant, uh, a killer doll arrives, uh, a doll that she believes is alive and committing crimes and murders and no one else believes her. So it's interesting to switch it from being a child to sort of an infantilized adult. This movie is a great, very knowledgeable play on everything that's sort of come before it in the Chucky story and everything about killer doll movies too and haunted doll movies. Um, it's just an incredibly solid, knowledgeable, fun, old dark house movie or someone wheelchair bound, you know she's gonna fall out of that wheelchair at some point at the worst possible <laughs> moment, you know? And it just plays um, everything great. This is, this is a series I really appreciate and this entry of attempting to make it like the first movie in some way. Uh, I think it works. Uh, I don't know that I have an incredible amount to say about it beyond like, um, this is what like great pop horror is to make. This is a horror movie that like anybody in the world could watch and enjoy and not have any questions about it or what it was supposed to be. And I think it would play to any audience you put it in front of. I think everything would work. I, I, it's hard for me to imagine that people see this movie and are like, that sucks. Unless they're coming with some preconceived notion of what they wanted it to be in some way. And it's not living up to that preconceived notion. Um, just good, solid pop horror. I think these days, you know, I don't know if there are people who are in both camps of appreciating the latter uh, Chucky movie sequels and the remake, the, the new reboot that came out this year. Uh, I can't imagine they exist because that reboot is hot garbage. It's, yeah, it's, it's genuinely so bad. It's genuinely it's, nonsensical. It's, That's a movie I was talking about. This movie, Curse of Chucky, is made by somebody who understands every cliche, every trope about the killer doll genre movie. Uh, the Chucky remake is the Child's Play remake is made by someone I don't believe has ever even seen a movie before, let alone a horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> it has no knowledge of, of any of that. It reminds me of a friend of mine who shall rename nameless who was hired to write uh, a remake of Little Shop of Horrors and he was telling me about the script and how they, they were under pressure to like make it as fucked up as possible and he was telling me the fucked up things and I was like oh, man I know you and I know you don't like horror movies you this is not fucked up you're not they're never going to make this and you're going to get fired from it which is eventually what happened <laughs> but it's like this movie this guy wasn't fired from it and they did make it it's just like made by people who just sometimes you're like 
how can they find these? Where do they find these fucking dummies? But for that very reason that, <laughs> yeah, no, for that very reason that you say, you, you feel like it's made by somebody who doesn't understand how a horror movie works. And to, for and CD to do Curse of Chucky, which at that point seems almost like, you know, they've exhausted the franchise. Chucky has definitely become Freddy more than once. It's once a over. parody intentional yeah. self-parody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Seed of Chucky is a parody of, of not even Chucky movies anymore. It's of like melodramas. It's like <laughs> yeah, Poverty right. Road Kid movies from the 30s. It's very strange. Um, but for him to have scenes like the poisoning of the soup scene uh, that are so effective that oh, you know, they're yeah. going back to where is the doll? Which room is the doll in? What's the misdirection here? And you're laying out the geography of the house yeah. so that you're terrified just by a shot of an empty room mm-hmm. yeah. becomes terrifying. The elevator that won't work or the door that won't close. Yeah, a yeah. noise from an area you know where there should not be a character yeah. because he set up everything so intricately. Yeah, that's actually a great point that uh, many uh, a horror film that doesn't work does not give you an understanding of the geography of the location the house the the, yeah. whatever the space they don't understand the space and when they do work uh most of the time the the you are inherently aware of where the wall is right behind the camera and stuff and and that i would say is sign of something very good solid workmanlike mm-hmm. i think uh, mancini's an interesting guy i had on on my show Waylon Jordan, who's a uh, a film uh, journalist, he works for. Uh, he's like the editor in chief of iHorror.com, and he was talking about uh, queer horror. But that Mancini did this amazing hat trick from the 1980s in the middle of the Reagan era, ha- an openly gay man making a horror film that yeah. has uh, queer sentimentalities all the way through it and, and mindset. So uh, he mentioned that this movie was like the, the pinnacle of going down that path. He loved Curse of Chucky. He said, yeah, it's like the, the uh, for a gay man to watch Curse of Chucky, it was like this is the the payoff <laughs> of two decades of watching the, the 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 Chucky films and the Child's Play films. That is, and yeah. how uh, that idea of the best friend that's going to take over your world and you know, <laughs> and never truly be with them uh, it was just such a great way to to. Uh, find a connection that doesn't necessarily feel overtly one way or the other. Yeah. It's not sexualized in such a way. It's more about the relationship. And so, yeah. uh, I well, think let's that's even see if Chucky is ahead of the curve on like gender identity and yeah. it's, and the, the interest it has in identification and how people make themselves the ways in which we're human beings are automated puppets but also in control of their own destiny. And I think that there's really interesting thematic things happening in Bride of Chucky and Curse of Chucky. Uh, But I understand too, if you're like, don't want your Chucky movie to be a campy comedy where Redman plays a famous movie director and, you know, John Waters says, God bless the little people, you know, (laughs) performing a sex act. You know, I think that, I can understand uh, that perspective, although I disagree with it. You know, it's really hard for me to understand why you wouldn't like Curse of Chucky, why anyone wouldn't like it. It just seems like, you know, let let go of it, man. Open your heart. There's got to be room for for Curse (laughs) of Chucky in your heart. (laughs) Well said. 
Our next list comes from Anna Stanley, California-based freelance writer and staunch Halloween 6 apologist. God bless her. Uh, her work can be really found... into the cult of thorn. She's, genuinely, she's a genuine like a cult of thorn member. Her work can be found on Birth Movies, Death, Collider, Dread Central, Vague Visages, Diabolic Magazine, and F This Movie. Uh, her series, two outstanding series, Gender Bashing for Dread Central and Doing the Nasties for Daily Grindhouse, in which she dove into the 72 banned films on UK's video nasties list from the 1980s. She's promised a book on it, and hopefully... We'll see that in the future. Uh, follow her on Twitter at Bookish Plinko. Yeah. She's Amy one of the best. Writer, she needs a book. Yeah. She, there's just got to be something by her you can have on your shelf to pull down and read, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, yeah. A lot of people contributed to this. I wish that they had more uh, collections of their writings that you could just pull off a shelf. Uh, her list from Miss Stanley's I Saw the Devil by Kim Ji-woon. Ji-woon in, uh, from South Korea, 2010. Mm-hmm. Kill List. Barbarian Sound Studio from 2012, As Above, So Below from 2014 by John Eric Doddle. And again, we see the Black Coat's daughter, Mr. Osgood Perkins. Yeah. I am, I am, I saw this list and this is one of the only movies on here. I said it with the woman too. I looked at this and I was like, why isn't I Saw the Devil on my list? And Mm -hmm. I don't have a good answer (laughs) for that. Yeah. Yeah, I think is, it was uh, sort of a toss-up between that and Cold Fish. That's probably the most memorable in terms of audience reaction, most memorable screening I ever had at Toronto Film Festival. Yeah. Um, it was a packed theater. We lost 75%. It's a by the end. to watch. 75% left. It's a brutal film. Um, oh, yeah. But the people, for the people who were left, we were practically high-fiving each other <laughs> when yeah. the movie was over. We thought it was such an amazing masterpiece. So even though it clearly was not for everybody, the people who appreciate it fucking loved it. Yeah, it's it's impossible to... Uh, if, if you're in the right mindset, if it's on your wavelength, this movie's hard oh. to beat. The twists in it are amazing. Just when you think you've seen what the twist is going to be, yeah. uh, it continues to get even more and more twisted. And of course, there's just amazing camera work. I mean, there's stuff in, yeah. in, in the film that, uh, you oh, know. Uh, flashy don't... directing. Yeah, I mean. Flashy directing. Mm-hmm. And flashy yeah. acting. Yeah, I think this is the high point of like the Asian extreme horror of that era. I think that this is, this, this is the obvious peak of yeah. that to me. And it's uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty dark <laughs> to say yeah. the least. The idea that you would have a serial killer hitch a ride and just so happens with another serial killer. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I was convinced was, when I saw this movie that South Korea was peopled. It was like a one to three uh, ratio of like regular people to serial killers. Yeah, and, and instead of going, well, this is just ridiculous. The credibility is falling apart. You hooped over it. It's like yeah. the audacity. It was so yeah, so baroque, so audacious yeah. that it's yeah. just like complaining about anything with the plot. What that seems like. Yeah, even the, the final sequence broken. Yeah, the the final coup de gras is so uh, just arrogant <laughs> it's just, it's amazing and I, so i love it and then we have the exact opposite which is the barbarian sound studio which i was surprised was not on more people's lists on here that one i feel like is a really beloved horror movie i feel like it's another yeah. one that people forget as a horror movie though yeah, yeah that's true it is one of those it's like personal shopper in a way 
Mm-hmm. You know, it has it has this subtlety of what the horror is that you can miss it uh, first time around, and then you watch it again. You're like, "Fuck!" And you're just so unsettled. First off, it it does something like uh, I know a lot of people liked One Cut of the Dead, mm-hmm. and I understand why people like it, but. There are times when I get a little tired of the self-congratulatory thing of making movies about movies. Yeah. Movie makers making movies yeah. about movies. Mm-hmm. You know, give me day for night and a couple of eight and a half, and you know. But Modern then there romance. are, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but then you have something where blowout, where it's yeah. not really about making movies; it's about the technicians or the conversation, where we learn something more, something about sound. Yeah. The deception of sound is really exciting to me. And so it's not about the guy who has cocaine in his nose and stuff like yeah. that over and over and over again. It's more about the obsessive diving of the unknown person. And that's yeah. where I think uh, Barbarian Sound Studio really works so well. Uh, it, it's unsettling, the chopping of the lettuce. Uh, the, and it's the obsessive continuation, doing it again and again and again, and that scream yeah. that trying to get. And just the, the heartlessness of the, being in a stranger in a strange land, this British guy going to Italy basically getting involved with Jalo and so they're all the artists and he's just the slob that they he's irritating the shit out of them they have their own way of doing things and his obsessiveness is driving them crazy and all of that is so uncomfortable and I think this is a horror film about being uncomfortable it's a horror film where the the, the dread comes from that and uh and so I watched it, I don't know how many times because somewhere in there I kind of lose the loop. I kind of feel like him. And and that's rare. It's weird. I feel like people who watch this movie, if you like this movie, you watch it five or six times. Yeah. I feel like there's no one who likes this movie who's like, oh yeah, I saw it once. It was pretty good. I feel like if you like this movie, it's always like, oh yeah, I've watched it a half dozen times. I watched it. Right. Yeah. Nobody says, I was into Slayer for a summer. You know, (laughs) (laughs) you get hooked into this kind of thing. Yeah. You put (laughs) rain and blood on repeat. You don't listen. Right. Two of once every once in a while. Yeah. Now, one of the movies that I'm really glad are, is on here, it gets a lot of shit thrown at it, is As Above, So Below, which I really cherish. I like that. It's, un, uh, it's imperfect, to say the least. There are issues with it. But I think that it was so wonderfully imaginative. And once again, it's not about movie making, but it is a film about cinema. It's a film about creating a story that can only be done in a motion picture format. The weirdness of sound, the trading of place, the idea of going down into the earth and the the rules no longer apply. I actually had, uh, I put this on a list of the 20 horror movies that you've never seen that you should see. And uh, some people got mad at me for having it in there. They were like, this is trash. But I think that the, the Dowdle brothers have some really interesting stuff that they've done. I really liked, um, and I don't know if it's ever been released, but the Poughkeepsie tapes. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Really unsettling, That's disturbing. A genuinely movie. fucked up movie. <laughs> yeah, it's really <laughs> wonderfully fucked up. And it's another movie that kind of like As Above, So Below, it doesn't have to make logical sense. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there is a part in both of those films where it's a feel thing. When you see in uh, in uh, Poughkeepsie tapes where the woman has to sit on the balloon and he's like screaming at her, she's terrified. It's like that is weird and fetishistic, but somehow terrifying. And there are moments in As Above, So Below that do that as well, where it doesn't necessarily make sense, but the feel of it, the emotional strings that are being struck make sense. Mm -hmm. And and I love the idea that it starts with all of this knowledge. I like movies that want to be geeky. Yeah. So this this movie goes down a path of you you obviously read an encyclopedia sometimes. <laughs> and and that's cool. I love when uh, when they uh, a horror movie can challenge in that way and then go down the path of there's a piano on fire <laughs> down in the basement of yeah. Yeah. As above so below the radar. Um, I don't know what I could say about Tim Lucas that hasn't already been said. Writer and film historian, he just completed his 101st audio commentary. And I would bet there isn't one of those 101 commentaries that isn't absolutely stellar. Um, he's always challenged his unique talent into everything he's done, from the early uh, fanzines, the revolutionary articles on the horror genre, his comic book serial turned novel throat sprockets, his magnum opus Mario Bava, The Colors of the Dark, and of course, the immortal video watchdog magazine launched with his wife and business partner, Don Lucas with 184 episodes over 27 years. He's got 19 Rondo awards and he's still writing on video watch blog regularly. Wow. Um, Mr. Tim Lucas wants us to know that he feels he had a hard time coming up with five films. Uh, he said that he, you know, wasn't a big fan of recent horror movies, but he mm. said that he, the five that he picked have the authority of a real horror movie uh, and that these are the ones that work best. So he has chosen Mother, American Mary, Raw, Train to Busan, and The Killing of a Sacred Deer by mm-hmm. Yorgos Lanthimos, 2017. So, Well, John, because we've talked about the other four, maybe we should just go into your fifth pick directly. Yeah. Thank you for that uh, transition, Chris. I have picked The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which was... Uh, on the edge of my top five and then seeing uh, Mr. Lucas's list absolutely convinced me because I, it got me thinking what he said about the authority of a horror film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started wondering what is that authority and apology, apologies to Tim for speculating. Um, but I think that the authority of a horror film is the director that creates the sensation that there is no escape you know, that there's one firm fact for these characters. Uh, what's going to happen to them is going to happen to them, whether they like it or not. And I will say in this movie, especially, nobody likes what happens to them. Uh, <laughs> uh, in a way, when you think of the traditional uh, haunted house scenarios, the haunting, burnt offerings, the shining, uh, films where there is no physical escape, when they actually are walls containing the characters and, uh, and whatever it is that's trying to behead them. Uh, there are no escape situations, uh, but really what they are, and especially the horror films, uh, the haunted house films, because they're about the supernatural, is this idea that we're tethered to our fate, that death is always going to be the inevitability for each one of us, and accepting that, refusal to accept that, is what these characters, is what's get these characters in a pickle. And it's what the filmmaker will never let them forget that these characters are 
in danger of dying. Um, now that seems pretty grim to open up to talk about this movie, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, but anyone who knows Lanthimos' movies knows that his movies are hilariously funny, yeah, super dark comedies with this amazing, surreal, supernatural tinge to them. Uh, I tend to think of him a lot like the writer George Saunders, who has a lot of really great similar sort of uh, flat-out ghost re- reanimation stories like Civil Warland and Bad Decline and Sea Oak um, that are also laugh-out-loud funny stories with this kind of insane uh, focus on the banality of the world. These characters who are just living these completely empty lives and have these fantastic things happen to them uh, and accept them with very troubling ease <laughs> you know that these things happen in their lives and all they want to do is get back to their boring banal lives but again that author george saunders and that filmmaker you're going to slant the most is not going to let them go um even earlier than well not as early as the biblical tales that chris was talking about uh the abraham and isaac story but earlier than fairy tales are the greek myths yes. that this film draws from mm-hmm. uh, the story of iphigenia who, yep. um, uh, when Agamemnon offended the goddess Artemis by killing one of her sacred deers uh, on his way to the Trojan War, and Artemis getting her revenge by preventing the Greek soldiers from reaching Troy unless he sacrificed his own daughter. Um, so here's Lanthimos and his co-writer, Philippou, uh, reaching into this very old horror story and bring it up into modern times and obviously borrowing some aesthetics from Kubrick because again, the idea of The Shining is these characters trapped in this situation. I had a friend point out long before the Room 237 documentary that you never see a character in The Shining physically leave a shot on their, of their own accord until the very last shot of the movie when they escape in the snowcat. Mm. Uh, but the char- there's this, this feeling not only of the geography of the hotel but of the framing that these characters are literally trapped by the filmmaker inside of this and i think lanthimos definitely took a page from that book with the clinical cold world that killing of a sacred deer take takes place in i guess i should talk about the plot really quickly it's it's the story of a family the murphy family uh steven who's a cardiologist anna uh who is a, a doctor and their children bob and kim teenage uh, daughter kim and younger son bob um, and then this interloper, Martin, played by Barry Cogan, an amazing performance. Wow. Who is kind of a mystery for most of the movie. We don't know what he's doing, but he is somehow obsessed with Steven. Uh, he keeps hanging around. He kind of en- ends up being part uh, of the family's life. And then eventually he gives them some kind of gypsy curse where all the family members, uh, Steven's family members, start to show these bizarre symptoms where first they're paralyzed and then... Uh, they they have no interest in eating food. And then finally he says they'll start bleeding from their eyes and then they'll yeah. die unless he kills one of them. He has to make yeah. this responsible decision to actually kill one of them. So it is a bit of a fairy tale in that uh, they're all this fi- uh, fusing a fairy tale imagery throughout the whole thing. The, uh, there are lines about, you know, cutting off hair and making them eat it. There are lines about beautiful hands, all these very sort of fairy tale and the bleeding from the eyes even, like everything is very fa- fairy tale imagery, but also environmental horror like Todd Haynes is safe. Mm. Uh, I get a lot of the, uh, you get a lot from this. Um, the, and the, we lose track of what the pathogen is and what the disease is in the society. Is it the horror come from this banal, b- the banality of like their life and the cold clinical 
uh, lives that they live, or is it from this guy who's coming to destroy them? We're not really sure where the horror is coming from, but from the very beginning, and again, this sort of Snow White's open heart is the first shot we see, right? The, the, this right. deep heart, like the, the one that the huntsman is supposed to get from Snow White. Um, it's just unsettling from the very beginning and just remains so f- from beginning to end. Johnny Bird's sound design is so amazing. The sound of the gr- grinding of the escalators in the hospital. Yeah. And again, it's just, I think, Lanthimos not wanting to let us out of this world, not wanting to let his characters out of the world for a second. We're always reminded either through where they're where the scene is set or where the sound is that these guys are stuck with this decision. He's going to have to do something and it's not going to be happy and it's not going to have a happy ending. Um, but he's not going to let them go. This is yeah. a very good movie. Yeah. Awesome. Film. It. Yeah. And I, I uh, particularly love uh, that you, you brought up uh, the, uh, Greek chorus, uh, the, the the Greek tragedy that's involved in this, because I, I think uh, I did a whole show on horror films that took from Greek uh, tragedies, and so uh, the Oresteia was uh, a big part. Uh, actually, there's a couple horror films that uh, that work on this, but this is one of the most overt. I love that you have someone who's normally not, I mean, he's in Lobster as well, but a lead actor who's not normally seen uh, for comedy as well as horror, uh, working so well. Uh, and I, um, I think when I watched this film, it was, I like that you mentioned Kubrick. But I was thinking of like Kafka, because there's just this really no exit kind of, you're trapped, you can turn into a giant insect if you so want to. I mean, the lobster is pretty much that. But uh, I mean, there's just this whole terror of the absurd and that the banality of death and the banality of evil is so weird and fucked up that it has its own essential comedy to it. I mean, well, that's that. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned Kafka, you know, I never would have considered putting this on my top five list because to me, it's so overtly a comedy, you know, and same thing with uh, Kafka where this is, these are comedic novels, you know, these are mainly funny when I read them. But I know that I say that to a lot of people and they're like, what on earth are you fucking talking about, you know? (laughs) Well, it is funny, but it's also, I mean, there's part of funny games in this film. I mean, uh, the the end end, uh, result that uh, finally after all of the- Well, there's, it's cruelty is so antiseptic, like in Michael Yes. Yes, exactly. And uh, I will say that everything that Yorgos does is like that. Uh, There's an antiseptic uh, humor uh, and terror that is inside of his films. I've spoken so much about this film on my on my podcast. I'm not sure how much I can bring that's fresh to it outside of uh, saying that uh, if you can take a look at the Greek plays. Yes, yeah. how cleverly he brings these these things into uh, not exactly a sensible uh, uh, modernization, but a modernization that really works. Yeah. Uh, the idea of uh, the surgeon being a king, yeah. and uh, what happens to the family, and you know Agamemnon's line is destroyed not because 
uh, he kills a sacred deer, it's because he covers it up. Yeah, he's actually, mm. he, he kills his daughter. He won't take responsibility. Yeah, he refuses yeah. to take responsibility. He kills his daughter uh, and keeps that under the slide because he needs to appease the goddess whose deer he killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's these extra sins that come up upon the family. And it's basically the destruction of this family and watching how they all become inhuman. It's so silly and yet so frightening when they yeah. stop being able to stand. When people mm-hmm. like yeah. crawling on the ground ready to torture this kid, you know, and he's willing to take on all of this torture because of what has happened to his father. And uh, in the end, I think the line that's most telling is uh, that uh, I think they say, this is not fair. Nothing about this is fair. Why are you doing this to me? I think the the wife says that. And Mm -hmm. he goes, I can't get justice, you know, so I guess I'll just go with this, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's the idea that, yes, I know that this is unfair. I'm an uncaring God. You know, there's Mm -hmm. gods don't care about fair. You know, you're, you're, uh, you allowed yourself to play in the world of the gods and this is what happens to you. And so there is that strange, uh, intoxicating weirdness that this movie gives you that I think full out is a horror film. You know, it's funny as hell, (laughs) but I see it as a horror film. In that, once again, that why, what is the why? Why do they want me to go home feeling like that? Why do we have that last sequence in the restaurant, right? Mm -hmm. Right. That's that's not funny. (laughs) It tells you whether it's a comedy or a horror film in that last scene. Yeah, and I think he's brilliant. I think the I rest isn't funny without that scene, though. I think if, if I think if the end is lacks severity, it makes the rest of the comedy uh, uh, too light, insubstantial, inconsequential. If the humor is not buoyed by something uh, desperate and absurd. And it's inconsequential. And yeah. comedy that's completely inconsequential is not funny to me. Now, how cool is it to be talking about films that are still being made? Not like we're taking a film theory course. Yeah, from 1954. Talk- yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> Looking at the French New Wave. We've actually got yeah. films that are happening now that no, he's a genre he's, so much. He's a modern master. He's he's really great. I've been a huge fan of him. John actually at Toronto saw Dogtooth and was like, Chris, oh. this movie is amazing. And I read the description of it and I was like, I don't know, it sounds like really bad Euro arty bullshit. You know, <laughs> is it like ugly people who are actually naked? And he's like, Yes, but trust me, it's great. And I couldn't believe how good it was. And then we saw Alps which for some reason didn't catch on. I think Alps is as good as Dogtooth and uh, loved it. Been huge fans. Lobster's still Lobster. my favorite, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Lobster is just... <laughs> yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. Who would ever thought, you know, Colin Farrell would, you know, give that kind of performance. I mean, in yeah. Bruges was, yes. you know, obviously he's... Yeah, but it's, you're right, it's a step up from mm-hmm. that event. Well, it's funny, too, that the two stars of this movie... Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman the same year were in um, The Beguiled, the remake of The Beguiled by Sofia Coppola, which was more overtly a horror movie. Well, yeah, so I wasn't sure whether or not I wanted to put Sacred Deer on my list or not. Thank you to Tim Lucas for giving me the authority to put it on my list. Um, I take what he says as gospel. 
Um, for our next list, we've got uh, Mike Thorne. After completing his thesis on John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, Mike Thorne went on to um, publish Darkest Hours, a collection of 15 short stories that run the gamut of the horror genre. This fiction has appeared in Dark Moon Digest, the No Sleep Podcast, and Tales to Terrify. His film criticism has been published in uh, Movie Notebook, The Film Stage, The Seventh Row, Bright Lights Film Journal, and Vague Visages. Um, MikeThorneWrites.com is his website, and at MikeThorneWrites is his Twitter handle. Uh, we love Mike. He's got terrific taste in horror films, and I think his list reflects that. He has chosen The Lords of Salem, Rob Zombie, 2012, Daguerreotype by Kiyoshi Kurosawa, 2016, Knock Knock, Eli Roth, 2015, Lesson of the Evil by Takashi Miyake, 2012, and Jin, Toby yeah. Hooper, 2013. Coming through and us. If you thought I needed a reason to have Mike represented on the show, our mutual love of Jen would be that. Yeah, I actually, I really like this list. You know, I like when the list events somebody's personality and, you know, Knock Knock is a fun movie. I, Anna Darmus is a real star now, but that's the first thing I ever saw her in yeah. and had a like real like, oh shit, she better be famous. And it's a remake of a completely fucking terrible movie. <laughs> yes. So if you've seen the original, you know, Death Game to just... Oh, really? You know, yeah, the, the fucking Sandra Luck. Yeah. The Gazzara yeah. thing. Um, it, is, it is, you know, Eli Roth for some reason has a really bad reputation with some people now. I don't get it. I, you know, it's, it's the interviews he gives. He's, he's a little bit... Frat bro, cool frat bro in, yeah. in interviews, but his movies, uh, you know, certainly state speak for themselves. And I think this is an interesting overlooked one. You know, it's it's a great, you know, a lot of horror movies mind the like. What if there's somebody who you want to leave who just won't fucking leave? You know, <laughs> that's always a great horror setup. Is like the guy who's making you uncomfortable. You know, who is just he's just there. He doesn't. He doesn't have the guarantee. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't an Eli Roth movie I have hated. No. At all. I mean, Green Inferno is not great. It's not great, but it's fun. Yeah. But it's funny. I, I think yeah. uh, he's, he's a, a provocateur. He's supremely yeah. talented. There's yeah. no way to deny it. Yeah. I mean, every one of his movies yeah. has something that's offensive, right? There's yeah. always something that you go, Jesus, now there's a joke. But uh, I think that that's great. There's mm-hmm. nothing that says that that's a problem. Yeah. And, and I think he, he always elicits some good, strong uh, yeah. uh, visual image and uh, a, a lot of emotion in his stuff. It's very yeah. visceral. But I think he's very funny. I mean, yes, the idea of taking, like the Green Inferno even, uh, the idea that it would be you know, a bunch of green pieces, basically, <laughs> that yeah. are about to be eaten, as opposed to a, a documentary crew that's... Yeah taking you know or people that are supposed to be you know hateable in some way that it's a plane full of yuppies that crash or something yeah and it's it's funny yeah and that's funny this list Uh, is full of movies that like i personally don't like that i appreciate the uniqueness of like lords of salem is not a movie that i'm personally into but i appreciate that if you want a movie like lords of salem you don't have a lot of options you have like lords of salem 
in maybe something else. And same thing with, with Daguerreotype, which is a movie that didn't, didn't work for me, but seeing it on a list like this, I immediately remember all the things I liked about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I immediately remember, you know, like all of the moments that shocked me and sort of the beautiful images, like the greenhouse that's been poisoned and things. It's really, it's a movie that has strengths to it. Well, given the Lords of Salem sort of, mediocre reception when it first came out yeah. i'm kind of invigorated by just how much of a jump it's had cults cult one yeah. yeah definitely had I'm, people yeah advocating I, it. i'm pleased for that i when i first saw it i was left cold i was like ah oh, well he's trying to and the thing is it was it's an ice cold movie yeah and it's atypical of what his style has yeah. been. And I just rewatched Devil's Rejects. And I was like, boy, this didn't age as well as I thought. And when I first yeah. saw it, I was like, really, wow, this is really vital cinema. I thought, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. Uh, I thought there was so much to it. And now I'm watching it. It seems like, hmm, mm. yeah, it, it did not age well. Yet Lords of Salem kind of did uh, the opposite. It's like a yeah. slow roll into something that is, I, I won't it's, say that it's, it's elegant. It's but with great performances. Yeah. And nothing ages well like a great performance, you know? You're right, right. And I mean, some of the actresses that are in there are just amazing. Yeah. Just getting work again yeah. for some of these folks was great. But it, it does, it has a haunting quality that is missing from a lot of his films whereas most of his films are shouts mm -hmm, and sometimes yes. that shout can be really good uh, but uh, this one is it's more of a murmur and uh, a disturbing under undercurrent whisper so that's what i appreciate I, about it absolutely i think you know he's his shouts get too much like the irritating neighbor you have to keep pounding on the wall you know in some of his yeah. films so rob, i do appreciate rob, that it's, about it's fine it's 9 a.m rob I just need yeah. to, this is my one day this week I can sleep in, Rob. Rob? Yeah. Yeah. Help me out, Rob. Uh, Lesson of the Evil, though, is a standout Mieke film. Have you seen it? I did, have not seen it. It's very good. It's hard to keep up with Mieke. Of course. I love He's Mieke. Super yeah, I love is he at 102 now, 103? <laughs> I'm not sure by this the time. Year, probably. It's yeah. got to be more yeah. than that. <laughs> oh, he just had his hundredth, I think. Oh, really? A couple years ago, wasn't the Thirteen Assassins? Was that it? He's had Whoa. like twenty-five movies since then. No, that's what I. Uh, so there we go. Yeah. So there we go. Jesus, uh, you can't keep yeah. up with him. I love him for that reason. I yeah. think what's great about him is that it's not always a hit. Uh, yeah. But I have to give a guy credit that he doesn't care what medium he works in. Yeah, he just wants to make the movie. He's got a story, and he just rips into it. And sometimes it's absolute masterworks. And other times yeah. you're like, going, I don't know what that was, but at least I watched it." Well, I guess the world just exploded again. Wait, How many is, times? What is Lesson of Evil about? I might have actually seen this. Uh, this is the one that's uh, set at the school. No, no, okay. I'm thinking of the one that's set at the the play where they're rehearsing ah, the play. No. Uh, okay, uh, Nottingham-based writer-director Stephen Shield has our next list. Yeah. Uh, he's the writer-director of the films Mum and Dad and Dead Mine. He is the curator at the Mayhem Film Festival in Nottingham. He is also a connoisseur of vintage genre fiction. We had him on the Pixbook podcast to discuss H. Werner Dixon's Deep is the Pit. We're big fans of Stephen, and his list is Raw, The Invitation, hmm. Green Room, Under the Shadow coming up again, Mandy, and then he throws us two curveballs here with two uns, uh, films he feels are underseen, 
The Transfiguration by Michael O'Shea from 2016, and Rift by Erlinger Thordson from 2017. Yeah, uh, the Iceland film is pretty interesting. I, I, I uh, There's a couple movies that came out of Iceland like in a three-year spate that were yeah. really bizarre. And uh, I mean, it, I've been to Iceland and there's just this really, f- we mentioned it with gin, right? Yeah. The idea of it location. Like the moon. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it just works in a film to be able to have that kind of bizarreness to location. Mm-hmm. And, and so it really informs yeah, great the atmosphere movie. In, in that film. Yeah. And I'm glad he recommended it. it's exactly the kind of yes. movie that I wanted, you know, these lists to, you know, bring, yeah. bring to the foreground. Yeah. No, I saw and, both of those because of this. Yeah. And the transfiguration, which I just uh, was at uh, cinema wasteland and they had a reunion for Martin. Mm-hmm. And oh. so it was great to see Martin on 16 million. <laughs> and uh and have the the cast and crew what was left of it uh, all there to talk about yeah. I, was, I brought up the transfiguration they were like i've never heard of it i said oh you really? have to see the transfiguration I said it's an up i said it's not an updating of martin but it is in the vein of hmm. martin and what i love about i still love the transfiguration because it's so subtle but it's all dracula's coffin the entire yeah. all of coney island is a coffin you know and it's coffins yeah. and coffins all these undead there i mean even apartments where one room is uh where the corpses lie and and the brother's on the couch and he's ptsd and he's like a he's like a, a vampire all of this undead uh stuff going through it and of course uh, oh my gosh i'm forgetting her name the actress uh, who went on to the Ranger? I can't think of her name for the life of me. Oh, Chloe Levine. Mm-hmm. So, actress Chloe Levine is so good in that film, and yeah. it's so terrifying where the movie goes. But the the idea of being obsessed with death and the monster movies that this kid has uh, constantly around him, uh, I just thought it was such a smart updating to Martin, which is an underseen film that I think maybe. You know, I, I on a good day, I say that that was the best Romero film. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's my favorite Romero. It's funny you said it's underseen, and I was like, oh, that's the best one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's hard to find. I don't even know if there's a release. Uh, I mean, I had... That I people wish. don't want to watch my signed VHS copy. That's not what people <laughs> are going to... Yeah, um, the clamshell. You have the old clamshell with the razor. No, blade on no, it. Uh, it's not the clamshell. It's the like purple and uh, yellow one with, like, the, oh. with the cover that opens up. Yeah, this uh, is by It's signed by Romero. Really? Yeah. Oh, neat. Wow, yeah. that's great. But yeah, I, I don't want to go down the Romero path too much because we're talking yeah. about the Transfiguration. But the the two would be a great double feature, and I think it holds up. Transfiguration holds up too comparisons with Martin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't believe that there are people who love the Transfiguration who don't know Martin. You know, it informs that film so perfectly. Oh, yeah. But I think it's it's a kind of a lost film. I think uh, I may have heard that there is going to be a release of it, but it's been unavailable outside of like YouTube. You know, oh, weird. putting up, yeah, it, it yeah, disappeared my, a long time ago. So long that, yeah, I never thought yeah, about I'm it. So oblivious to that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> uh, great list. Um, I think, Chris, we're ready for your fifth pick. Uh, my fifth pick. It's funny you were talking about uh, Greek myth and fairy tales with killing of a sacred deer. This is a film that gets called 
and compare a fairy tale movie and compared to fairy tales or not, but I think it's something stranger than that even. Um, I love this movie. It's Evolution by Lucille Hetzel-Halosevich. And uh, I, of all of the movies on this, I don't like, um, I don't like ghettoize the horror genre in some way, but of all the movies on this list, if I did my straight up five best movies of the decade, this would unquestionably be on my five best movies of the decade list as well. Um, and it is about uh, the story of it on uh, a sort of mysterious unnamed island with these volcanic rocky black beaches. A little boy goes out swimming and sees in the water a drowned body with a starfish on its belly. And he comes out of the water and we realize at some point in the movie, all of the boys are adolescent. They're like 11, 12 years old. And all of the women are like 19 or 20 years old. And they all dress in these sort of institutional brown gowns. And the little boys are always dressed like French peasants. And he tells one of these uh, sort of nurse caretaker women that he saw a boy in the water and shortly thereafter is diagnosed as being sick and taken to a hospital type place that's on the island. That's the only real sort of institutional building we see on this island. And he is taken for the process of being cured, which is they first remove his belly button. And it is very hard to explain what this movie is. Um, and how it functions and where the story is going. It's sort of, I've both like said nothing already and said too much. It's a want <laughs> to, you have to let it unfold in front of you. And it gets compared to fairy tales. I think for the reason of, it has its own internal logic that is feels somehow divorced from recognizable reality, but that the logic of it functions perfectly within the story. And it's also, you know, fairy tales are horror adjacent. This is a very eerie movie. This is a very um, deliberate film. This is a film that's built entirely on mood. It has some of the most gorgeous photography you will ever see, particularly the underwater photography is absolutely stunning and you know it's a movie that nods to like naked witches covens right cavorting it's a movie that nods towards unnecessary surgery it's a movie that nods towards like suckling monsters you know it's a movie that faints in all of these different directions while being like nothing else out there this is a, a totally uh, unique film that is that is unforgettable to look at. That's just a sort of unforgettably uh, uh, haunting film. And like uh, Hadzel Velosovich's first movie, Innocence, this is movie a, a movie that's obviously about adolescence. This is a movie that sometimes when you watch it, you're like, I hope the police don't catch me with this DVD, you know? Oh, oh boy. That gives you the impression that, like, I could get in trouble for watching this, you know? <laughs> it has this uh, intersection of, like, it's about adolescent sexuality and adolescent sexual confusion in a way that, again, like, how fairy tales are metaphors 
for uh, sexual awakening a lot of the time and sexual terror and metaphors for uh, um, the transfiguration of, of rape into consumption a lot of the time. And this has the same thing going on, but it's not like a fairy tale. I think it's ultimately not like a fairy tale and it's not like Louise Bunuel and it's not like a surrealist film and it's not really like anything except for horror movies. You know, and I think that that's what sort of gets overlooked about it. I don't think it's a movie that would ever be promoted as a horror film. I don't think the audience that has seen this movie, and it must be a very small audience, it's not a well-known movie at all. I would be surprised if much of the audience for this film even considers that, yes, I've seen a horror movie, you know, but for Mm. me, that's the world it connects to most easily. But because it's beautiful and because it's... uh, fantastical and because it's cerebral and because it's concerned with very mature themes dissected in a way that's eerie i just don't think it gives people that impression of being a horror film which wasn't the things that i find very compelling about this film and i also love there's so many stylistic decisions that are made in it like absolutely no technology appears in this film even when he's in the hospital like the stone they're using like this stone to perform the operation it's almost like her their belly buttons are being filed down with like a pommel stone and all of the straps and things in the hospital it's like old leather stuff and old leather braces and long metal syringes and things like that all of its stylistic decisions are so cohesive and so inexplicable, are so cohesive and so inexplicable and so evocative that it's, again, you struggle to find, it's like poetry, it's like surrealism, it's like a fairy tale, but because it's entirely its own thing, I think none of them stick, you know, that this is something that is an artwork entirely unto itself. And you know, to just even describe it, just the final shot of it. It's an amazing final shot where you're just left thinking, wow, what does that mean? But also I know exactly what this means. You know, it's it's very, uh, the whole movie functions like that where you say, wow, what does that mean? But also you sort of feel like you know exactly what it all means. Mm-hmm. I know nothing of it, so I'm going to have to find this one. Oh, this it's is... phenomenal. It's on Netflix. And I, and I hate to say it, She's probably best known as the wife of Gaspar Noé. And it's got a sensibility that's nothing like his. I think she's like 10 times the filmmaker that he is. So I hate to bring it up. But if you're interested in, in in his work, I'll mention this movie to people and they won't be interested until I mention Gaspar Noé, which I hate about it. In a just world, he'd be known as Lucille Hetzel-Halushevich's husband. But I think it's, you know, and it does give you a little bit of a sense because it's dark and it's weird in the way his movies are, but it's far less bombastic and immature. You know, his movies feel to me like very, very sort of juvenile provocations. Whereas this movie has like the wisdom of an adult looking back at childhood. Interesting. I'll have to take a look. I definitely have to take a look. Yes. If, yeah, 
I would say of all of the many movies mentioned on here, this is the one that I'm the biggest advocate for by far. And David Duchovny is great in it. Oh my God, you're thinking of the wrong evolution. <laughs> oh, you're right. Sorry. Okay. David Duchovny is terrible <laughs> in this one. I was just going to say, wow. That... Yeah, no, there's no known actors. There's no good way to describe them. <laughs> yeah, David Duchovny's playing a 12 yeah. year old boy with a starfish. Like, <laughs> yeah, that the starfish is going to grow out of his belly. He plays somehow. the starfish. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh my God, there is a shock shot in this movie that is up there with just real, like, oh my fucking God, this is a nightmare. This is a total goddamn nightmare. That's as good as any horror film scene. You know, if it was in a torture porn movie, you'd be like, that's too much, you know? Wow. But this movie is not that at all. So when it finally happens, it's genuinely, you know, it's genuinely uh, an upsetting movie. There's also like real footage of a C-section in it that's like completely horrifying as well it's just such a fascinating it's this movie is is so beautiful it's beautiful 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 our next list comes from kim garland kim is the writer and director of the award-winning resurrection trilogy and author of the right direct repeat column for script magazine which can be found on her website kgarland.com and kim garland's list is train to busan we are what we are the jim mickle version raw the girl with all the gifts and American Mary. Yay. Yeah. This is, I think we've talked about all of these. I know. I feel bad for putting her list uh, so late, but she had so many films that uh, pop up on the other list that I, you know, didn't want to preempt anything. Yeah. But uh, have, have we talked about girl with that, all the gifts? Uh, not, not, not too much. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, so really, yeah. I no, really like that film. Solid picks. Yes, um, I like that movie. Yeah. Like, I was another strong lead performance. I think that really, yeah, a magnificent it. lead performance. It's another movie that has a, a strong female lead performance. Yes, uh, and it's also. I mean, I'm so burnt out on on zombie movies, yeah. and I was like, I didn't want to see this, and then I watched it. I just watched the very beginning of it. And I was going, this is really interesting. This and Annihilation, mm-hmm. back to back would be wow. a great double feature. Yeah. Because there's this whole thing. This is a movie that the happy ending, you know, the, is it a bad <laughs> ending or is it a happy ending? Yeah. Because we're watching, uh, it talks about identity. You know, it talks about what makes us, us, what makes us human. So if you have this species, this, this zombie bacterium or zombie drug uh, that is coming in and it wants to survive under all costs, does politeness do the same thing as like the bird with the plumage that keeps its predators away or brings a mating uh, a mate to you the idea that it needs to ingratiate itself that politeness and humanity may not even be real maybe nothing more than about a yes no of a chemical uh, thing that needs to survive knows the only way that it's going to survive is to get close to the warm body the only way it's going to get close to the warm body is to be as human as possible and to make risk a sacrifice it's brilliant that you have these different types of folk that are surrounded by this creature this and that there is this thing that happens whereas so many people are kind of zombified and just hanging out in the streets but then there's the children the idea that there are children that are born dead or in this stasis and it is this 
thing, this microorganism that is growing. And this is the new evolution. You know, is this the end of humanity? Is this a, yeah. a, a, a furthering of humanity? Yeah, the idea I almost thought it as like a continuation of the end of I Am Legend, the Richard Matheson. Yeah, yeah. The strain has now created this new kind of creature. Yeah, that in like, essence, because yeah. it needs to be nice, yes. is actually more nice and more human than human. And uh, I thought that that was really interesting, especially when the military guy is basically just wanting to blow her away from the very beginning. And, you know, there's the school marm that's too yeah. stupid. And there's the scientist who knows precisely what's going on and still would kill her in a second. Uh, there's just these great moments where they play on the idea that you're seeing this adolescent girl politely sitting in her cell counting off how long it takes for the person to come realizing later that that's just the same as any fruiting body on a microorganism you know that you would see under a microscope it's it's brilliant and i thought that it was so smart and that end is cool tragic and a win at the same time it's yeah. it's really really cool I, I i did not expect that movie to be anywhere near as good as it was Oh, I'd say that's exactly the way to sum it up. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know what to expect from that film. And then when zombies come in, you think, oh, okay, it's a zombie movie. But it's not. It's yeah. not as focused on survival as it is about continuation, you know, where we go from there. And like you said, preserving civilization, you know, preserving what makes us human uh, and then going into a new biological destiny. So, yeah, it's a very cool movie. Uh, our our last list, our very final one from a, oh a, a contributor, uh, is from Tenebris Kate. Uh, Kate is a New Jersey-based writer and artist whose work explores her long-standing fascination with all things dark, fantastical, and forbidden. She is co-host of the literary podcast Bad Books for Bad People. Yeah, <laughs> limited run items for her micro-publishing imprint, Heretical Sexts. Her work has been published by Heathen Harvest, Sluttist, and Ultraviolet Magazine. Her illustration clients include Spectacle Theater, Death in June, and Porta Negra. Uh, Kate also did a phenomenal article on Curse the Demon um, that we published on The Pink Smoke. Uh, go and check it out. She is a wonderful writer. Uh, and she says completely fucking awesome. She's awesome, and she uh, has commentary on this list. I'm going to read it in full. She says, in no particular order, the movies I mostly wonder why everyone isn't talking about all the time are Knife and Heart 2018, directed by Yan Gonzalez. Mm -hmm. I can get you to see this by telling you it's a French period piece neo giallo, and there's a lot more happening here aesthetically, tonally, and emotionally. She would use the terms De Palma esque and poignant to describe this kinky gem. Hmm. November 2017, directed by Rainer Sarnet. A dark Estonian period piece fairy tale features a stronger dose of psychedelia that is poetic, dreamlike, and tragic. Great if you're chasing the Czech fantasy movie high of Jan Svankmeyer, combined with the <laughs> witchy fascina fascination of the current moment. Mandy, 2018, Panos Cosmatos, contained both of 2018's big fucking moods. Mandy cackling over a character's small dick, plus Nick Cage screaming, pantsless drunk, and bleeding in a toilet. <laughs> Crimson Peak, 2015, Guillermo del Toro, lush, operatic, gothicry, a greatest hits of gothic lit, including several specific bad books or bad people tropes, released in premium IMAX format, surely a thing too beautiful for this world. 
and Witching and Bitching 2014, directed by Alex de la Iglesia. A group of incompetent and armed robbers encounter a coven of witches. This slapstick war of the sexes is likely to turn off some viewers, but those who stay will be rewarded by its energy. Oh, wow. What a list. I don't know Witching and Bitching. I have to take a look at that one. Oh, it's fun. It's a really fun movie. It's the guy, what is the name of that clown movie? Uh, he made um, uh, the Stay the Beast and uh, Perdita Durango. Yeah, Perdita Durango, but he also did the like Crazy Clowns Face Off movie. Oh, I don't know. He's an interesting director. I yeah, I, I I feel as if I've never heard of him. So this oh, is really interesting. This is someone I don't know. Do you know Perdita Durango based on the? Uh, it's one of the Barry Giffords. Um, Books that Wild at Heart is the first in the series. Well, I feel like Day of the Beast would be the oh. one that you know. Yeah. Day of the, the Beast. 90s. No, uh, I don't. If I did see it, I don't remember. That doesn't sound like that would be the case. And he did The Last Circus is what that Oh, okay. I know The Last yeah. Circus. Yeah. And he's an interesting but, director. Boy, I have to take a look at this. because Nothing drives me crazier than when I'm completely waylaid and blindsided by somebody I've never seen or heard of before. Yeah. This is awesome. This is yeah, he's good. He goes, pretty, he goes pretty extreme at times, too, but not just like – it's not like a um, – He meets a really good balance yeah, between say, extreme and like goofy – almost Shaun of the Dead type fun kind of a movie. Sometimes Perdita Durango's fucked up and 800 Bullets. Yeah, there's a lot of goofy up. stuff in it too. I, yeah. I think I'm saying, I'm saying it's a compliment. He really does get a good Yeah, he's, a, he's in a, between. So I was about to say, so he's it's, almost like a Rob it's not extreme. Type. It's not extreme enough that it turn, I think would turn people off. It's yeah. fun enough that it would, but it also is not cutesy. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. it's going to say he's like a Rob Zombie. Like that's yeah, sort see. of the same tone if not interests set of interests yeah yeah that's what's so great about genre work i mean you can stay awake all night long and there's still going to be stuff that you don't know that there's something new it's not sitting around in nostalgia uh it's funny you mentioned kevin marr he would talk to me about uh he went to see uh uh Rod Serling, Serling Fest yeah, yeah. in Albany. And he was saying, you know, here we are 60 years after the show. He goes, and there are all these guys that are completely Catholic on that show. Everything that the show did was genius. Everything that was a reboot is pure tripe. The movie is a mistake. He goes, and that black and white is so weird. He goes, because you think about the early Twilight Zone, everything in there is about nostalgia. There are several shows that are about guys that are disappearing into books and old paintings and all this stuff. They want to embrace the past. And here all the fans are doing the same thing. And it's like, you don't get to do that with uh, when you're in the full- Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't have uh, we uh, we don't have the luxury of staying with just the one tried and true movie that we love because there's so much that can pass us up in a heartbeat when we're dealing with these kind of films. I mean, November that was a, an impulse watch. You know, I was like, "What the hell is this?" And I was like, "Oh my god, this is fantastic!" I, I, would, I would dare anybody to, to to watch the first five minutes of November and not, not be hooked. Yeah, not be yeah. Hooked. Also, have you guys seen Knife Plus Heart? Yes, it's absolutely fucking kick ass. It's good. Like it's really like knockout punch kind of. I didn't realize that our buddy Tony Stella and Midnight Marauder had done the poster for it. Oh, I didn't. I didn't. It's a gorgeous, that it's gorgeous poster. poster. Ah, it's such a great movie. It's uh, because it it so loves Jalo. 
and yeah. so wants to throw a monkey wrench into Jalo at the same time. <laughs> yeah, you know what I love and, about it is all the Jalo pastiches that come out this last decade, especially the uh, the cat at uh, Forzani movies. Um, they, they 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 get the style of Jalo, obviously. Right. They get the look, but I feel like they don't really have much use for anything else. I feel like Knife and Heart really understand some of the fucked up, weird sexual yeah. politics of Jalo films and really turns it on its head in oh, really yeah. surprising ways. And yeah. the whole bird thing, which was just so <laughs> yeah. absolutely yeah. wonderful. That's when I knew, you know, I was uh, I was in a movie that really enjoyed uh, the the stuff that it allegedly was in love with. Yeah, and and gets it. And, you know, Jalo is one of those weird things. I think we talked about that on one of the earlier episodes that, yeah. uh, you know, you, very easy to uh, allow someone to call it a misogynistic art yeah. form. And then you've got this based yeah. in the world of gay porn. And I don't, think, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily Jalo if a character walks into a room that's completely painted red, but it's a Jalo when a character goes to meet a bird expert and there's this temple in the middle of the woods. <laughs> right, yes. And, and he's got a, a, a talon instead of a hand, yeah, yeah. a bird talon. Yeah. It's like, and they'd say it's some disease you've never heard of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, it's so perfect. That is I'll, true. Like a fucking bird expert is more Jalo than like, <laughs> you know, than all yeah. the Sound studio, <laughs> yeah. and I love her list because you have these crazy movies and these strange ones, and then this wonderful romantic five course meal that you get from Del Toro. Yeah, you know, out of all of these things, everything else feels like you know, uh, you know, uh, this, Alphabet this, City. Yeah, and, and then you if have this to put that bad books for bad people. This is perfectly. Kate, Tenebra's Kate. That's great stuff. So, Scott, here we are, your fifth and final pick. Don't leave us in suspense any longer. What oh, is it? Good gravy. Well, uh, I go back to 2011, and I think that this movie is really the Kickstarter for everything that comes from like Midsummer. Uh, the resurgence of folk horror really starts with one guy. And I say that that is Ben Wheatley and the movie is Kill List because uh, Kill List brings back almost like a late 60s John Borman point blank kind of feel with the Wicker Man and Don't Look Now all kind of mixed together. So there's like this weird out of time kind of feel to Kill List. Now he had, uh, I think it was a, a field in England. I'm not sure if that came right before or right after Kill List. But some released after. I don't know if it was made. It was, first, but, okay. Yeah. But uh, some people will talk about that being full car. But I think really uh, the, the heart and soul of folk horror, this idea of the British new neo-pagan kind of thing appearing in witchery and warlocks coming into the modern world really is epitomized in Kill List and nobody saw it coming. Uh, nobody knew what we were getting into. And I think the, the key to it is like, what if you were to find out that society as it runs is a ritual? that you're in process of without your knowledge, that all of the things that we talk about with full car, when we see uh, Stonehenge or Newgrange in Ireland and all these things, and we try to say that they're all about uh, crops and things like that, we're looking at a mechanism that was at the center of culture that was all about ritual. 
How do you keep people going? You go through this ritual. And that's what this movie is about. What if you were part of a ritual that you were going to be the sacrificial lamb and you didn't realize until you passed the point of no return and that somehow that ritual is consistently going through society. What I think is really interesting is that Kill List is a movie that's a puzzle that only gives you one piece at a time. And when you finally get to the end, like halfway through, you think you know what the picture is. And then all of a sudden, it's like, who are all these people who are rushing this, this farmhouse? <laughs> it's like, what in the heck is going on? And of course, we start almost in a city. We start in a city and we end up going out to the country. We talked about this before, the city mouse, country mouse mm -hmm. uh, area of horror. Yeah. That being someone who is out of place uh, allows for them to be vulnerable in a way that is... Uh, unexpected and especially with this movie where we're basically following the lives of two guys named Jay and Gal. They're former soldiers and they're soldiers of fortune from what we can tell. There's some talk that maybe they were true military, but the, the way that they talk about what has happened in their past, there's something grotesque and shameful and damning that has happened to these guys. And it's particularly to Jay. Now Jay's recovering from some job that's gone wrong years before. He hasn't done anything. He's at home he's this fallow person and the bills are piling up and even his I think it's his wife yes it's his wife uh, would like to see him go back to the dangerous world that has left him unhinged then allow him to just sit on this on the, the uh, couch and gal appears with dinner uh, with a girlfriend who knows this client who uh, has a business proposition for them. And since he's having all the problems that he is, the pay they tell him is going to be lucrative. Uh, but this client knows their work from before and has demanded their services in particular. Now, we don't know anything about anything about their work except for where it went bad. So why would these people want somebody who is seemingly unhinged in that way? We're not necessarily sure what's going on. But we have this thing that a warlike man like Jay has been turned into like this terrified person. Yeah. And he's going to go back into this world. So what happens is they meet this client. It's an older gentleman in a nice, wonderful building. You know, it's the, the, the typical thing that you would see, the old English world where the money has been around since the beginning of the, the, the island of, of England. And uh, these people uh, all have uh, a knowledge of each other. And there is like this society of men who run London. And it's all coming from this place. None of this is actually said. You just get the feeling of it. Somehow this guy is omnipotent. He seems to know everything that he needs to know. Uh, they're given a kill list. Our soldiers are given a kill list. Three targets that need exterminating. So after all of this, we find out they're just going to be hitmen. Each of the three targets have committed some evil that is not explained to our hitmen or to us. So we are in the same position. And I love mysterious films that are full of uh, crazy uh, visual images that never give you an answer, that have you learning things at the same time as the main characters. So you're not quite sure. You're off balance as well. So they're told they will get more information as they go through their kills. Uh, they need to continue through to the end of the kill list to get paid. So even if they, if they chicken out halfway through, 
no money. So they must, it's a blood pact. And in fact, there is blood that is spilled for them to be able to have this pact. Now, you have a blood oath. You already know. If you're in any horror movie, a blood oath is never a good thing. So they find out the, the contract is sealed, and they find out they're after three targets. One is a priest. One is somebody who's known as a librarian who has a huge video database of unseen atrocities. And then there's a member of parliament. They don't know these things immediately. We find this out as they go along. But the priest, when they go to kill the priest, the priest seems to expect them. And he's relieved that they're going to kill him. He thanks Jay before he's going to mur- be murdered. So there's this thing is he, you know, what did, did he do? We don't know. But is it so bad that he, he feels that this is what is going to happen to him? Why does it feel like everybody knows something? Everybody at their meeting knows something that these two guys don't. Are they the machete or are they the bull that's going to get the machete to the neck? And so we get this, see these odd symbols that are not explained immediately that are showing up in in different places. As the job continues to go, Jay becomes more unstable. And they're moving out from their comfort zone of the city. And they're moving more and more into the country as this goes on. There's a moment where they're interrogating one of their targets. And they're trying to get more information out of him. They're torturing him with a hammer, smashing his kneecaps. And at one point, one of the men, Gal, walks out of the room. And Jay is there with a hammer. And the guy looks up to him. And it's like a moment that you see. There, there was a moment in the new John Wick where... You know, he's got this assassin who looks at him and goes, it's an honor to actually get to battle with you, sir. Well, there's this weirdness that happens in this movie where the guy who's about to get tortured even more by his torture looks up and tears in his eyes says, it's an honor to meet you this way. And he looks over at his friend. He goes, he doesn't know who you are, does he? He doesn't know who he is to this guy. And his answer is blind rage. And what happens is really grotesque. But the further on they go, the more it seems like the entire world is in on some crazy twisted joke that these guys are being pushed like cattle through a corral. Big, big fence, big farm. And then all of a sudden it goes into a chute. And they're being pushed through this chute. And it's literally a tunnel, a big stone tunnel. They venture out into the country and the rest. I mean, I don't want to give away too much, but what I will say is that why I love this movie so much is that I do feel that this is where the power of what is known as uh, folk horror comes from, where Midsummer gets all of its energy and, and even movies like Hereditary, where it comes from this idea of dark forces that hide in plain sight the banality of evil, rituals that are camouflaged consistently. All of these movies have the banality of everyday modern life and the answers are right in front of you. If you look at uh, Midsummer, what I love about Midsummer is the whole movie's on a fucking mural in the very beginning while they're, while they're showing the credits. Uh, and it's, that says something about how the movie's going to work. We walk in smiling cattle into the abattoir, not realizing that we're actually part of the sacrifice. So the Dances in this movie, they take place in tunnels and the ground. It's like these old fucking nymphs and stuff that you hear about in folk horror. You know, these monsters in the ground that pop up. And, they, and all of this happens under the veneer of society. 
And so all the way through the movie, there are symbols that we don't understand, but there are also symbols we do. Military symbols, insignia, money. We get to see close-ups of money. We get to see close-ups of flags. We get the idea of how we pledge allegiance to flags. We follow community standards. How much of this is something that was agreed upon generations ago, centuries ago? We don't even know why we do it. And what if we don't know that all of what we do is in service to a darker ritual? And that's what kill list gives to me it gives me this whole idea of a society that's far more ancient that is moving what we consider modern society and if you take away the gigas and the internet we are still with the thatch huts and one person's gonna have to die to keep everybody else going and i i I just i thought it was such a remarkable film because i never saw it coming and it's so stylistic. Like I said, it's, it reminds me of Nicholas Rogue at times. It reminds me very much of John Borman, especially Point Blank. And it uh, gives me uh, this also this feeling of like a continuation of The Wicker Man. I think we do in America, we do horror films that have a folk horror feel. But I think there's still a very pagan pride in the UK and in Ireland, that when they start talking about when blood was let uh, spilled on stones, on cromlecks, they're still kind of happy about that. They're still like, yeah, we did that first, man. Yeah, then <laughs> us and the Incans. And so there's almost this weird, this is part of our culture that England still has. I mean, they had fucking TV shows like Children of the Stones in the 70s that were pure-ass pagan. And if that came on in the 70s in the United States, they'd have been, the PBS would have been disbanded yeah. back then. And so there is this agreement that the world and nature and the old ways and the new ways kind of combine together. And so to me, Kill List was integral in creating this thing that I really love in horror, which is where the supernatural may not even exist. It may be that we only know so much about the natural that we can't even begin to say what's super about it, that nature itself is as super as we need. And what we know about it is dangerous. And what we do to try to define and bring it in and rein it in uh, is murderous at times. And so I, I think that it was one of those films that was a flashpoint for a bringing back of a film study like Blood on Satan's Claw and movies like that that came out in the 70s that were really entrenched in the, the danger of our history, yeah, especially England's history. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, do you hope to see more of that progression in the next decade of horror? Boy, I hope so. I think so, because we've already had The Wind. Have you guys seen The Wind? No, I haven't. It's actually based on a silent film, and it is an American film. Is it American? Yeah, it's about the Old West, and it's about a family living out in in the middle of nowhere, and another family comes to live next to them. And it's told in nonlinear time. But the idea is that there's something in the plains that you can't see, that's in the wind and it may drive you mad. And so the wind is already uh, part of that. I think, uh, I'm not sure what's gonna happen with the lighthouse. The lighthouse feels like it's going in that direction. I think that there is going to be, what I said about uh, horror uh, now, I think is going to continue and we'll see where it goes and what dies on its way to that next level as well. There will be sacrificial 
lambs. There will be sacrificial <laughs> tropes that will be uh, bled for the new blood. But uh, I mean, we already have all these tributaries and I'm hoping to see more Spanish horror. And I want to see more South Korean horror. South Korean horror is unhinged. I mean, I didn't even get to talk about like the wailing and movies like that that are so full of weirdness and yeah. talk about weird like slapstick comedy. And then in the end, it's like a knife in the stomach. I mean, these are fascinating times where cultures that we don't quite need to, I mean, it used to be where guys like me and probably guys like you in the 90s, we'd go to some place where they had a bunch of blank uh, covers that would just have a scrawled, uh, this is this movie that was made in 1972 by four Frenchmen. All of them are dead now, but you want to see this movie. Uh, you know, we used to be the ones that would, okay, I know Chinese ghost story one, two, and three. You know, I know a muck train, you know, all these things, these Italian horror films the Chinese horror films and the Brazilian horror films. Now anybody can see them. Now it's open. All people need to do is be permissive with themselves and allow these movies to happen right in front of them. And so I'm hoping that, uh, I really hope that uh, the idea of folk horror really does entrench itself. I think going back to guys like M.R. James and going back to uh, Algernon Blackwood, one of my favorite guys, you know, these guys who said, you know, the world is chaotic. The modern world is madness. Zeros and ones don't add up like we think it does. Yeah. Something about the spirals in the willows, you know, something about the wind to go out there, you know, the idea of uh, the terror, you know, Dan Simmons' book and uh, the AMC thing, the idea that you would go out into uh, the woods or out into a glacier to a point where physics no longer works. I think in a way that's where we want to go. Yeah. I think uh, I think there's a part of us that longs to have nature show itself like an angry god one more time, so that we don't have to think that Bill Gates is the be all end all. And so I'm interested to see where we go with horror in that. I think horror sometimes is the dangerous daydream that we hope comes true. And so I think the more we go into the jungle and the more we go, I mean, fuck, we're talking about the, the, the Everglades are disappearing, the coral reefs are disappearing, the rainforest, the, what's left in the rainforest, you know, how many toucans are dying every fucking day. We need to find the spot where that no longer feels like it's going to be the end of the world. And that's going to be the supernatural nature of nature. Well, you've given me a lot of optimism for the progression <laughs> of horror films in the future, I must say. Um, Mr. S.A. Bradley, thank you very much for joining us for this. No uh, for uh, the sake of uh, viewers who wanted to cheat and get right to the end of the episode and just listen to the end of this episode, uh, could you remind us what your top five favorite horror films of the decade were? Okay, there was A Dark Song by Liam Gavin. That's Ireland, UK. That's 2017. Uh, I'm probably not going to get into order here because I dropped my papers all Don't over Don't worry the about the order. That's yeah. okay. But uh, I will say Starry Eyes, Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmeyer from 2014 is also a great one. Kill List, which I just spoke about, 2011. Ben Wheatley, uh, is the director and once again an amazing film and let's see if i can just roll real quick oh the witch in the window 
by Andy Mitten, directed by Andy Mitten, good old USA, 2018. And the last one, well, good good heavens, is that all of them? You're good friends. You just went and saw Rabbit. What's your last one? Oh, yes. Uh, American Mary, the Saska Sisters, 2012, I believe. And uh, wow, I can't believe I've missed that one. So obviously we've been going for, I think we've been doing this for about three months now. So I <laughs> that it's going to be over sometime. I never thought it would. would <laughs> yeah. So but uh, I, I highly recommend all of them. Great ones. My five were The Untamed by Amat Escalante, 2016 in Mexico. Cold Fish from Sion Sono, 2010 in Japan. I also had Penance from Kiyoshi Kurosawa, 2012 Japan. Curse of Chucky from Don Mancini, 2013 in the U.S. And then Evolution by Lucille Hadzaholosevich from 2016 in France. Also a great list. My uh, John That's Cribbs my kill list, though, guys. <laughs> uh, John Cribbs' list was The Black Coat's Daughter, directed by Osgood Oz Perkins, 2017. The second one was Katoko by Shinya Sukamoto, 2011. Prevenge, directed by Alice Lowe, 2016. The Killing of a Sacred Deer, Yorgos Lanthimos, 2017. And then my cheat double pick was Jin by Toby Hooper, 2013, and Under the Shadow by Babek and Vari, 2016. And if anyone was curious of the uh, the entire group, all the collaborators that we uh, involved and ourselves, the um, titles that came up the most were Raw and Trained to Busan ended up being mentioned six times uh, by six different people. Uh, Kill List by five. American Mary, The Invitation, The Witch, and Dark Song all got four not awesome. people. I did not notice that. That's great. Yeah, and, I'm very surprised that uh, that Kill List was on that many. I feel yeah. like I didn't notice as it was going on. Yeah, I didn't either. I thought maybe I saw it once, and I was like, hee, 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 I'm not alone. Well, you have to go back to the beginning of the episode and listen to the whole thing again. Oh, That's right. Goodness. <laughs> the beginning of episode one, I should say, <laughs> of three. Uh, well, that's 15 great films right there in the decade. And then with all of the others, I think uh, it's a good sign that it was a pretty powerful and strong uh, decade for horror. Uh, and I think that we're, uh, I think we're on the upswing. This year uh, was a little bit fallow comparatively, but the movies that were really good were really good. Like Midsummer, holy yeah. shit. I mean, that's, that's like art right there that should be talked about for a long period of time. We'll see. Maybe in two years, I'll think it's pure crap. But uh, as of right now, I'm looking at it going, Nobody that's... was willing to commit to that for these lists, I noticed. Yeah, I was kind of surprised. Yeah. yeah. So but, we'll see. I can give it a little time. It's yeah. always hard to pick something you just watched three months ago. Absolutely. Yeah. Although when I saw it, I went, okay, that's it. I mean, uh, it's going to take a bit for somebody to beat that just by how many buttons it pushed for me. I mean, it just yeah. ticked so many boxes and it was beautiful and so funny. I mean, that, there's such great humor in that dark, yeah. dark, dark film. Uh, thank you. Thank you again, Mr. Bradley. And thank you to all you. of our contributors to the guest list. I'm just going to read them off one last time. Thank you so much. Kathy Koja, Andrea uh, Supersetti, Maddie Doe, Tom Vaughn, 
Grady Hendrix, Will Erickson, Tristan Risk, Rachel Nesbitt, Stephanie Crawford, Joe R. Lansdale, Outlaw Vern, Heather Buckley, Elise Salomon, Richard Harlan Smith, Ian Lawful, Elric Kane, Brian Sauer, Donata Reevedu, Ashley uh, Blackwell, Matt Wedge, Patrick Horvath, Anna Stanley, Tim Lucas, Mike Thorne, Stephen Shield, Kim Garland, and Tenebris Kate. Thank you all so much for letting us know what films we should be watching. Um, and that wraps it up, guys. Scott, thanks again. Thank Chris, you. Everyone, have a wonderful yeah, time. Thank you so much, Scott, for doing this. Thank you, everybody, so much. Everybody, have a wonderful Halloween, a wonderful, scary October. Everyone, have a great time. Bye.